Hi, this is Patrick Kilpatrick, and I was Reese on Siege of AR-558 on Deep Space Nine, and I was privileged to play Razik in the Star Trek Voyager episode Initiations, and Asan in the Star Trek Voyager episode Drive. And you're watching Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. There's a lot of actors who are typecast as tough guys in Hollywood, and that's generally not because these people rested on their laurels. They are often legit badasses who lived a different life before finding their way into acting. Names like Danny Trejo, Dolph Lundgren, Cynthia Rothrock, and Jesse Ventura come to mind. But the one thing that these tough guys have in common is off-camera, well, they're super nice, intelligent, and very welcoming. And the same can be said for this week's guest, Patrick Kilpatrick. Patrick appeared three times in the Star Trek universe. First, as a Kazon named Razik in the second season episode, Initiations from Voyager. He followed that up on season seven of DS9 as a Starfleet officer named Reese from that infamous episode of one of my favorites, The Siege of AR-558. Both of these episodes featured Aaron Eisenberg in a major way, so it's also a nice footnote to add here, one that, of course, we do talk about later on. His last role in Star Trek was on the seventh season of Voyager in the episode Drive, as the Imhotep pilot involved in that Antarian transstellar rally named Asan. Beyond Star Trek, Patrick has over 150 credits to his name. He is one of the best bad guys to set foot in action films, including movies like Eraser, Death Warrant, No Way Out, Showdown, Best of the Best 2, and you know what? I'm going to count this movie Free Willy 3, because let's face it here, technically he went toe-to-toe with a killer whale. Not many folks can say that. You also might have seen Patrick in shows and films like Criminal Minds, Chuck, Last Man Standing, The X-Files, 18 Wheels of Justice, JAG, VIP, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, Babylon 5, The Stand, and Matlock, to name a small amount of things on his very lengthy resume. Patrick's trip through Hollywood has a lot of twists and turns, and he has a lifetime of stories to tell from even before he actually set foot onto a stage. And many of these things he's actually written about in his autobiography, which we also will discuss today and is worth checking out. So consider this a preview of some of those escapades, along with some absolutely untold Trek tales. And when I say that, I'm not just being hyperbolic here for real. One of his Voyager stories is absolutely bonkers, and I am positive that no one has heard this before. So we are breaking ground with a man who probably could literally break the ground if he decided to punch it, and well, at one point he did, as you're going to hear later on in this interview. So that man is Mr. Patrick Kilpatrick. Listen up and enjoy. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, 
Get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our Teespring store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the screen here, we have a man who we've seen multiple times in multiple iterations of Star Trek, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff that we are going to dive into today. Mr. Patrick Kilpatrick, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, really. And I got to tell you, just hearing your voice and seeing your face right now, it's such like a cool thing for me because I've loved you in so many different films. And uh, the fact that you did Star Trek makes this even cooler for me because that's just another excuse I have in the show to talk to really cool people like you. Well, the Star Trek jobs were incredibly memorable, um, sometimes because of the brutality of them. <laughs> that's a but, good way to put it. Uh, uh, They've always meant a lot, and, I, and uh, I've always appreciated the fans. And uh, in fact, in 2001, when there was really no work after 9/11 for about 18 months or so, I went around the world to different conventions, the vast majority of which were Star Trek conventions, and they literally became like my extended family uh, on the road from. Germany all over the place. It was Germany all over America. Uh, so I've always appreciated Star Trek fans. In fact, I think there's a lot of documentaries to be made just about Star Trek conventions. Oh, yeah. Um, so particularly the women, you know, you're talking about at any given Star Trek convention, there's, there's women there who I've done maybe 80-plus episodes of television. Some of these women have done 500, 600 episodes of television. Yeah. And been emotionally and romantically involved with every leading man from the 60s onward. So uh, there's a great documentary there somewhere. Well, I can tell you someone actually is working on that, although I'm curious to see where it's going to go now, just because I know the parent company that was doing it uh, just went under, but Nana Visitor actually was working on a documentary and a book all about the women of Trek. So, shout out well, to right. her. That I'm sure would be incredible in their own personal journeys. Some oh, yeah. of them are still fabulously beautiful, and some of them have been ravaged by time and uh, whatever their life circumstances were. And uh, it's a great story. I yeah. wish whoever's doing it well. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Uh, so let's just jump right on into things here. And, you know, Patrick, I want to get your, your secret origin story, if you will. But uh, I got to ask you first, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching the show? 
I didn't grow up watching it, but I went to college watching it. And it was literally like religion uh, every day. Um, I went to the University of Richmond and I didn't have a TV the freshman year. And freshmen were required to live on the campus. Uh, but at that time, we live in a world now of co-ed dorms and everything else. In fact, that's sort of, at that time, if you had a woman in your room, then you were expelled from the university, even if they just visited you there. And so I moved off campus for my sophomore year and got my own apartment and had a TV. And every day, I believe it was three o'clock, we watched Star Trek, the original one, uh, avidly. Yeah, incredible. Um, I, I'm thinking of that. What's the episode with the Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, figure? with the diamond eye that Kirk fights. Um, Are you talking about the Gorn? Yeah, the Gorn. Well, years later, I was filming on that same location, Star Trek Voyager, on the very place where the Gorn did battle with Kirk. Um, uh, The Red Rocks, where a lot of Westerns have been done. So uh, that was a kick, yeah. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about that, because I I noticed that, too. I'm glad to hear that you... uh... As a Trekkie, you appreciated that yourself. Well, I've met the guy who plays the Gorn. Most people have gone to, and he's he's a trip. Yeah, that's that's Bobby uh, Clark. He actually was on this show too. Yeah, yeah, really cool guy. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you were born, Patrick? What your parents did for a living? Who they were, and what little Patrick wanted to be when he grew up? Well, well, my my, I was born in a tiny little Virginia town called Orange, Virginia. My dad at the time, this was uh, just just before the Korean War, my dad was a, actually a World War II, decorated World War II guy. And my mother uh, was a girls' phys ed teacher and a teacher, and he was a teacher. And he was, they were both teachers at a school called Woodbury Forest School for Boys in Orange, Virginia, when I was born. And... Uh, my father was a guy from Louisiana, who uh, extraordinary guy. He at seventeen, he became an un- he joined the Navy, became an underwater demolition team guy, and was decorated in the Pacific. Uh, great baseball player. Uh, he led the University of Richmond to the National Collegiate Baseball Championship in 1949, and struck out George Bush to win the National Collegiate baseball championship. So when I was born, my mother was a teacher and my father was a World War II hero with a national baseball reputation. Um, And the baseball coach at Woodbury Forest School, and uh, it was a little one-room clinic. Um, So uh, that's the birth. I mean, what was the next portion of the question? Well, I want to find out what little Patrick wanted to be when he grew up. Did did you ever think you were going to be an actor? Oh, you know, I, like most kids, I think you're most in living in the present and more um, trying to figure out how to be exhilarated by whatever you're doing. So I really, I didn't give much thought to what I was going to become when I grew up. As a teenager, I began to gravitate toward writing. My parents wouldn't allow me to watch much television 
early on, although I snuck a lot of it. And um, uh, I got a television set and put it in my room and turned it on without the sound so I could pick it up from where they were watching downstairs. Um, but mostly I read, and the earliest heroes that I had were, um, they were either characters in books or writing writers themselves. So I was heavily influenced by guys like Ken Kesey and uh, then Hunter Thompson and uh, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and guys like that. And so what those guys did was really try to live all the time, you know, moment by moment. And that was probably my earliest uh, impulses. Of course, like most people at that time, I was influenced by the films I saw, which were largely John Wayne movies, war movies, um, you know, things like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It was the first movie I ever saw. As a teenager, I lived in drive-ins. Your, your whole social life takes place in drive-ins. So I was heavily influenced by that. But I never thought about acting as a, an actual occupation. It wasn't until maybe my 20s with Rocky coming out. And Rocky, had he had written his own script. Yeah. Uh, so I began to think in terms, since I was a writer at that point for magazines in New York, then I began to think about actually writing plays and things like that. And that's what I ended up doing. So I really kind of came to acting through the back door of writing uh, after having been a journalist and an advertising writer for magazines. And so you did all that in New York, right? So you came to New York basically to pursue a writing career, then that just circuitously kind of went down. Yeah, and I, I, was, uh, I answered an ad for... Uh, an advertising copywriter and got the job. And, you know, like most young people, I accelerated really quickly in the first couple of years. And during the day I was working as a writer and at night a bodyguard for rock groups and, um, and making a lot more money as a bodyguard for rock groups than I was at, as the, I mean, I think my first writing job was $6,500 a year. And that was a salary then. Um, but quickly got it up uh, and ended up at Time Incorporated, which was kind of the top of the heap of the magazine world at the time when magazines really were influential. I remember HBO, they were starting HBO, and it was like a couple of geeks down in a closet. And we were all laughing and making fun of them. And, you know, at what, what are they doing down there? Because Time and Sports Illustrated and Fortune and all those other magazines were the top of the media heap at that time. Um, so uh, I was very blessed, actually. I was very blessed to have a, uh, a literate magazine publishing career, which lent itself greatly to when I found my way to acting mm-hmm. through uh, a director-actor friend of mine. I wrote a play instead of a novel which I was trying to do, and that got produced, and then that took me into acting. I, I got to press you a little bit more on what you just said there, because you know when I was doing my research about you, I read that you were a bodyguard, and I read about some of the names of the folks you worked with. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and uh, some of the people that you got a chance to, I guess, guard their bodies. I don't know the best way to put it, but you know, sure. some of the folks you worked um, with. Well, I, when I moved to New York, my then-girlfriend, uh, her best friend's a woman's boyfriend 
was putting a crew together. At that time, this is about 1971-72, there was, I guess, not unlike some energies. Now, there was a feeling that people didn't want to have police officers at, at concerts, rock concerts. So they were putting together a crew of people. There were nine of us. Um, most of them, seven of them, I think, were New York Jets football players off season. And so they, we had this nine man crew that when rock groups came to either Long Island or Manhattan or New Jersey, then we would provide security for them. By that, I mean at the gig. Literally, it was like on the stage to keep the people from rushing on the stage and stuff like that. And I mean, what could be more fun for a young guy straight out of college. And um, so I found myself uh, on the stage with all those guys. And it was people like uh, Jimi Hendrix was one of them, uh, Propel Harem, the Beach Boys, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Grateful Dead, Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart, Humble Pie, Steve Marriott. Uh, <clears throat> um, who else did I work for? Uh, Elvis, uh, Pink Floyd. We did a lot of, I mean, it was fantastic. I did it for about a year and a half. It became very violent. Um, depending on the venue, it became really violent. And because there were venues in the Bronx, there were venues at Nassau Coliseum, uh, the Fillmore East, uh, there were there was one venue in New Jersey I can't remember the name, uh, but it was awesome. It was really incredible, and I made it was probably one of the most corrupt enterprises I've ever been involved in because they paid us with fifty tickets to each show uh, plus a salary, and you were allowed to scalp the fifty tickets, and uh, also. You know, a lot of those things were standing room only, so you just take a hundred bucks from somebody and let them in. So we were making a lot of money, and that was sort of accepted behavior at that time. It got pretty crazy when a lot of kids tripping and everything else, and eventually the police got back involved, and then it became even more violent. (laughs) So after about a year and a half, I said, well, you know, it's not really a career. Um, but I saw a lot of, you know, shootings and stabbings and a lot of extraordinary music. Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, uh, fun stuff. Uh, I'm very blessed to have seen that. I mean, I saw Hendrix so many times. I got bored. I mean, which I was just living, listening to Hendrix this morning and pretty hard to get bored by Hendrix. But it's not bored so much as... I just been there, done that, so I would wander to other parts of the stadium and stuff like that. Um, it was cool. Yeah, sounds like I mean, sounds like hard work and an interesting piece of work, but a lot of fun too. A pretty rewarding experience. Yeah, well, you try to have a sense of. I mean, remember when we were doing Grateful Dead? Always had the Hell's Angels as yeah. part of their um, security. So basically, uh, the Hell's Angels got to do whatever. <laughs> I remember one time I was sitting at the Fillmore East. I was standing there, and there was this Greek statue in the lobby. The Hells Angels came in and crated it up and walked away. And far be it for me to stop them from doing it. 
if they wanted to do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I feel really blessed. I don't know if you know Quick or Messenger Service, but they were awesome too. They were kind of the opening house band for the Grateful Dead, and then they jammed with them. Those concerts would last eight hours. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, music has always been kind of a. Um, I grew up in a town in Connecticut that was very precocious musically. There were a lot of bands. I never did it myself, but I feel blessed to have watched all of that. And we, and uh, one of my earliest things was putting on rock concerts. Uh, and we made money in high school doing that and things like that. So guys like Dr. John and Greg Allman and things like that. So we were, I mean, music was so powerfully an influence at that time for everybody. Um, you know, for example, I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas originally in, in Rolling Stone, where it yeah. appeared. So um, anyway, it was a great time. Yeah. I want to ask you about one of your earliest gigs. It might actually be your first gig ever. I'm not sure, uh, just because I know you did a few things, uh, at least according to IMDb yeah. in this year. Uh, and that would be in the first Toxic Avenger film. And uh, you play yeah. a thief named Leroy who gets killed in classic brutal trauma film fashion. Uh, so I'd like to hear what you remember from your time on that set and also working with Lloyd Kaufman. Because he's, you know, while I can't necessarily watch all of his films because I can't handle the gore, Patrick, but uh, I can appreciate what that man has done and how he makes his films. You and I are similar in that. Um, while I was working at one of those writing companies, um, they the company said it would pay for any advanced education anybody did. So I looked at New York University, and the most expensive courses, this is destiny at play, were film and videotape classes. So I signed up for all those. So I was down in NYU, and part of that process was doing a lot of student films. You know, and I did a lot of them. They always had to do with the psychological, psychosexual, uh, you know, neuroses of the student director. But I don't think um, much has changed, Patrick. <laughs> I, I, I learned a lot about being on camera from that. So the Toxic Avenger thing came up. And for me, when I went up there, it was like just another student film. Uh, and I actually, I have a, a second volume of my memoir come out. I talk about Toxic Avenger a lot because I felt, I don't know why, whoever was providing the money for the film would arrive every night. He was a really old guy. And he had two huge, muscly Goomba guys that were with him. So I, I felt like there was some undercurrent of, I won't say mob financing, but that's what it felt like. So, and he happened to be the boyfriend of the blonde ingenue of the thing, which was totally incongruous to begin with, because she was about 23, and this guy had to be in his late 70s. So there was something going on there. At the same time, parallel to that, I had been in the largest production in the history of public broadcasting, which was a very, you know, um, lofty, uh, you know, hoity-toity public broadcasting masterpiece theater kind of thing. So juxtapositioned with that and the Toxic Avenger. So, I mean, some really funny things happened. I met Lloyd, and frankly, I thought this was the worst film in the history of Western civilization when I was doing it. But, you know, I was having fun because 
it's a generational thing. You said it's too much gore for you. You know, the Toxic Avenger hits some sort of chord because the generationally they love that sort of tongue-in-cheek gore fest. And for me, I was coming from the sands of Iwo Jima with Jane, you know, or uh, the Godfather or that kind of sensibility and or Broadway and off-Broadway shows. But anyway, so we get on there and uh, your fans will probably know I painted my face half black and half white. And I was really kind of doing an homage or stealing, whichever you want to call it, uh, from Malcolm McDowell in If. Uh, uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Clockwork Orange, yeah. which was an influential film at the time. So I was kind of doing a junior Malcolm McDowell uh, deal with that. I mean, the film was so funny because in retrospect, it, I, I get it as a producer, but they hired a guy where they had to rip off his arm. So they hired a Vietnam veteran who didn't have arms. And so they just ripped off a fake arm. And that's the kind of thing they were doing. And, you know, what, what else was memorable? Well, one time I told the field, the female ingenue, who was very beautiful, uh, I was going through a, a kind of a breakup with a, a woman who had left me for a much wealthier guy. And, uh, and so I was telling her, and she had been a fashion designer. But as soon as she got involved with the wealthy guy, she lost her aspirations to be a fashion designer because she didn't have to earn a living anymore. Yeah, how convenient, so right? What? How convenient. Yeah, so I, I told this blonde, a blonde on Genoo one night, I don't think it's good for young, talented women to get involved with much older guys because if they're providing all the money, then you might lose the economic drive you have for your own success. Well, the next night, the two gumbos, goombas showed up, and I guess she had gone home and she told this uh, older gentleman, who was her sugar daddy, that... Uh, Patrick had said that young guys shouldn't go out, young women shouldn't go out with young guys. So I'm urinating in the men's room, and all of a sudden I find these two monsters on either side of me, and they go, you're not to talk to Caroline, whatever her name is, ever again. <laughs> I zipped up and I said, sure thing, guys. I won't talk to you ever again. So that was one of the things that was memorable. I think what's brilliant about Toxic Avenger is how Kaufman uh, and Michael, is it Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hurst, how they they distributed it. Yeah. They went from state to state to city on their own. And they literally, like Billy Jack did, I don't know if you remember that film, yeah. but he did it on his own and they made a bunch of money on it. But did I think we were doing something that would have like five sequels and everything? No, I thought it. I thought it was. What was another illuminative thing about it is, it took the movie four years to come out, and four years later, on one side of the New York Times, there was a glowing review of the PBS thing, Roanoke, and on the other side, a glowing review of the Toxic Avenger, and I realized at that time that the world of cinema embraced all different kinds of tastes and all different kinds of sensibilities. And it was kind of heartwarming. Heartwarming is a word I never thought I'd hear in the context of the Toxic Avenger, but I'm going to well, go I, I tried to talk those guys into doing a quote-unquote quality film yeah. <laughs> years later. 
and having them turn the money over to me and or I collaborate with them. But I think they were very happy with doing what they did. Yeah. And they they had no aspirations to saving Private Ryan or uh, or 300 or, or Juno or anything like that. They they were in the space they wanted to be in. Yeah. So uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the nice things about looking through your resume is, you know, as part of my research, I will watch as much as I can of the person I'm talking to. And you have so many awesome action-related things in your resume, and that made my job so much easier because it's instead of me having to, like, micro-pick through, you know, and hyper-analyze all sorts of dramatic roles, I get to watch you, like, beat the crap out of people or get the crap beat out of you, depending on the movie. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of those things that I was able to find was your episode of Walker, Texas Ranger, which sure. uh, the episode was Skyjacked, and you played a character named Lyle Guthrie, who's a deranged man on death row who escapes. Sure. And you get to have a one-on-one -on -one battle with Chuck Norris, uh, so I'd like to hear what it's like working with Chuck and uh, more so being able to actually be a dude that fights against Chuck Norris. Well, uh, first of all, Chuck is a great guy and I really respect and love him. Uh, he, he was of the age or the mindset that in any battle with him, nobody got to hit him back. If you look at those fights, it's always him kicking somebody through a window or whatever. He's always striking all the blows. Yeah, and, I get, that, yeah. and I get it. Yeah. He just was probably weary of taking the hits and wanted to do it any way he wants to do. So the fights, quote unquote, were always one sided. I did notice uh, that because when I was watching the fight, I was like waiting for you to do something. It's just you getting knocked down again and again. And I'm no, like, okay, no. so, so he's going to rope a dope. What's happening here? Well, that's by that's by design. Yeah. The other thing about Chuck, uh, which was wonderful, was him, his family, because the stunt coordinator was his son, Eric. Wherever we would go in Texas, uh, a crowd would gather because he's immensely popular in, uh, everywhere, but in Texas, too, particularly. <clears throat> and while we'd be filming, his wife would be selling T-shirts to the crowd that would assemble. I said, well, that's a family that's really working together to cash in. So she would be making $500 selling uh, T-shirts to any crowd that assembled at the same time. The other thing that was memorable about the job for me uh, was uh, we had an ice storm the moment we hit Dallas. And it literally paralyzed the city. And so we had to sit in the hotel largely for about 11 days. And if you're a producer, that's a nightmare, uh, particularly a SAG producer, because you're paying everybody to just sit around. Uh, so the girl who plays my sister in that show was my girlfriend at the time. So we basically had a vacation uh, in the hotel for 11 days. And meanwhile, making a lot of money just sitting around. So it was a, it's an actor's delight. It's a producer's nightmare. Um, so, uh, but they couldn't drop us or anything. So we had to wait until this ice storm dissipated. Um, they had a good time. It was fun. Anytime you can go on vacation and also get paid to be on vacation is a pretty sweet deal. Well, it happens. And I think it, because it, it balances off some of the really rigorous things that you do um, 
in other circumstances, sometimes like the Star Trek show, or you're doing a road picture across America and you're living um, out of a bus all, all the way across. And then all of a sudden you get a job in Hawaii where you work the first day of the month and the last day of the month and you're free the rest of the month in Hawaii. So uh, somehow the universe or God or whatever you want to call it balances it off. I just got a, a had a trip to Scotland that came right at the end of a long period of script writing and everything else. So, yeah, it was a blessing. Uh, you know, it was a lark. And I was very grateful that my wife got to, we were in the most beautiful part of Scotland. And so things balance out. I, you know, you don't have to worry about, I never have to worry about going on vacation because I figure the good Lord, the universe, whatever destiny sends you the vacations you're supposed to go on. Now, that's not to say an acting job is a vacation. It's not. Um, but you often get enough downtime to really enjoy it. And it's a great way to see a different environment. So um, uh, I haven't spoken to Chuck since then. I have talked about how his, you know, having worked with Chuck and Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Laudam and Gary Daniels, um, Billy Blanks, uh, the nuances of their talents and the, the different skill sets is really interesting yeah. uh, to me. I mean, Stevens involves firearms, you know, and uh, a little bit more of a killing side to it. I think of Chuck, I mean, you wouldn't want to get kicked in the head by any of these people, but uh, Chuck's more as a competitive kind of competition type skill set. John Claude has a little bit more of a sort of dancer, uh, gymnast type of feel to a lot of his stuff. Uh, Billy Blanks, of course, could wrap you up and kill you in two seconds, too. But it's a much more competitive psychological mindset. Uh, so it's, it's intriguing, the individual. I ran into Billy the other day at the Dragon Fest, which what a great privilege it was to be there with all of these martial arts guys. and. He doesn't look at, he hasn't changed in the slightest. And I look forward to working with them, him again. Yeah, I did actually watch uh, your, your fight scene against Billy Blanks. And I, I really feel like Billy Blanks one of those guys, that his name gets left out a lot in the discussion of like great movie martial artists. And he is absolutely one of those gentlemen who should be up there among the, the upper echelon. Yeah, well, you're, uh, I think uh, you're talking about, what, eight-time world karate champion? Legit, yeah. Um, yeah, um, you just remember now it feels like as the Taibo guy, but people forget. Yeah, like, the Taibo, Taibo thing going yeah. on for him and all of that. And some of those guys, you know, my career is kind of predicated on, I decided to become, uh, to be very effective at auditions. Some of those people don't choose to do that. And really to have a long, long career as an actor, at least for the many of the first years that you're having it, if you're not mastering auditioning, then you're you're not going to continue to work because they don't offer it to you just as a matter of course. You're going to have to go in and, and, and deliver the goods that are not this. And that's a brutal process for a lot of people. Um, so I don't think Billy is one of those people who really went down that audition path. Certainly Chuck didn't. Certainly Jean-Claude doesn't. And he doesn't need to. But 
even in the early days, I think he was there much more so um, uh, whatever offer they're coming to. A lot of good actors, like guys who are in soaps, you know, they get used to the Porsches and the fandom and all of that. And then the soap ends after three years and they're millionaires. They don't want to go back to audition. They So their career kind of fizzles out or it, or it goes in a different direction. You've got to be either willing. In my case, I tried to focus on writing and producing uh, things when I got really tired of auditioning. But I spent many, many years auditioning after I, having done 120. And that's not unusual. I'll go to, I, I used to go to auditions and there's, there's Emmy winners and Academy Award winners there. And you're like, what are you doing? Why are they auditioning you? But that's the nature of that system. And you either accept it and revel in it creatively, or you give it up and you do whatever you do. Well, let me ask you this, Patrick, because you know, you've gotten to work with the likes of a lot of pretty big name action folks. And we mentioned a bunch already, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chow Yun-Fat, John claude yeah. Tom Cruise, Billy Blank, Steven Seagal. You got to work alongside Bruce Willis as well. Uh, so, you know, for me, it was hard to pick, you know, who to even talk about because it's a big name list there. It's a, it's a lot of really great folks. So I guess who would you say was the easiest to work with and who was the most giving and generous to work with? And that could be as far as a fight scene or just a scene partner. But in that realm of things, who was easiest to work with and who made filming a nightmare? Who was most difficult? There are really, really wonderful things about a lot of those guys in a different manner. Um, let's take Arnold. Like Arnold is a, when I worked with him, he was a, a bit of a jokester. He likes to have a good time. Very fun. I was prepared for him to be somewhat arrogant, but he wasn't at all. He's just a great fun guy. At that time, he wasn't, and I don't know that he still is, he really wasn't involved in every intricacy of the production. But then you take a guy like Tom Cruise, who is a sweetheart and really absolutely dedicated to um, the action realm and doing his own stunts and things like that, and a super guy as well, but a different personality and a different kind of a thing and, and involved in every aspect of a production. He's a producer. Um, Chuck was really great to, to work with. Um, nothing, any problem. Stephen uh, is is was a bit more um, removed, you know. In a way, you don't really work with him at that time. He would come in on a helicopter and do a scene for five minutes and then leave. Uh, so it's it's not like you're doing in, in in the micro for a scene. Maybe you'd be working a little bit to him. My character didn't really act with him. So I just was able to observe how he related to the project. Uh, we had a couple of conversations, and they were genial. Um, he's a bit more removed personality-wise from other more distant. Jean-Claude, uh, when I did Death Warrant with him, great storyteller, great uh, um, fight choreographer is in his own right. Uh, Best friend one minute, worst enemy the next. Uh, none of which he's just very emotional. Um, and then when doing Blackwater with him many years ago, uh, 
time has passed and you know what the, that old expression, uh, Hollywood just turns you more into what you are already. <laughs> I'm trying to, it's all articulated in my book, but uh, it's very funny because I, this morning I sent Jean-Claude a contract for a movie I'm directing and producing and wrote right now. And uh, so basically you had to send him an email this morning saying, sign the contract by Monday or we're moving on. So, you know, uh, great enduring distribution value, but uh, all you have to do is do your research and you'll find out with these personalities. I'm a little hesitant to talk about it, but I talk about it in the book uh, in depth. And most of it I find amusing. The, the, the crazy people uh, make things fun. If you're the producer, that can be hell on earth. And just for folks who are curious, we're going to have links to that book as well in our show notes. You guys can make sure to check it out there. And Well, your audience should know that the first book has to do with the uh, upbringing and writing career in New York. And the second book, which is coming out and is already written and unpolished, is all about show business and goes into great depth about each one of these, uh, the Star Treks. Uh, I mean, segueing into, you know, the first time I was on Voyager, I called that job the River of Doom. <laughs> it's a long story, but it was a hellish job, hellish. Oh, and we're going to get to that, yeah. My agent is saying, everybody loves that place. They want to go over there. And for me, and by the way, it's a delight because I look back on it and the stories that I got from it were really rich. Um, most of these things, I look upon it as just fodder for life. <laughs> um, uh, each one of these action guys, to answer your question succinctly, is very much an individual guy. And, uh, and if you're a student of human beings, which I think I am, uh, or an observer of them, uh, it's fascinating and deeply amusing what what goes on with them. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Nego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions. 
where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autographed picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. Well, I do want to ask about one other role you had before we move on to our Star Trek discussion. Uh, and this is because it's a personal favorite of mine. Uh, you got to do an episode of Martial Law. Which starred Samuel Hung. Samuel Hung and Arsenio Hall, yeah. Yeah. And also, that episode you were in had Tom Wright, by the way, who a lot of folks who are listening to this podcast will know as Tuvix from Star Trek Voyager, the infamous Tuvix. But yeah, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Samuel Hung's choreography and his action films, and I love hearing any stories about the man. So anything you got, please. <laughs> I'm all ears. Well, legendary figure. Um, he didn't speak English much, uh, and I really enjoyed him, but. I think that show is really interesting. And I'll tell you, for me, it's really important. I did a, a pilot called Honolulu Crew, Honolulu CRU, that very same year. So we did Honolulu Crew, very expensive, elaborate John Woo-esque uh, gunplay, Lori Petty, Michael Rooker, really cool cast, shot very elaborately. Didn't even get picked up. But the number one show that year was Martial Law, the People's Choice winner, which was pretty much of a simplistic uh, concept uh, uh, with Samo and Arsenio. And so I don't know if there is a lesson, but that's always struck me as a kind of very weird deal. Yeah. For me, as a filmmaker, the Honolulu crew would be infinitely more intriguing, and I'd be more likely to watch it. But sometimes a very simple concept really resonates with an audience. Um, so Samo was a lot of fun to watch. I had much more interplay with uh, Arsenio. I actually slapped him in the middle of the scene. And... Uh, I was supposed to be the bad guy and I'm talking to him and he was talking cheekily back to me, which I thought, what would somebody really do if somebody started being cheeky with them? Like, so I just reached over and slapped him pretty hard. And the whole cast and crew were like, 
oh my God, what the hell just happened? Uh, he just slapped our star. But I have to tell you, Arsenio said, no, no, it's brilliant, perfect. He, he, was, he rolled right with it. And so uh, that's what made the show memorable for me. You know, if you're an actor, a role, you can't surrender your, your goals. Uh, uh, one time I had to do a thing with Stone Cold Austin, and I was supposed to be interrogating him. And he started wrestling with me. So my character can't surrender to that. And they're filming it. So I started wrestling him and fighting him back. So pretty soon we're actually going at it in the middle of the thing. Neither one of us releasing whatever objects our characters are going after. The director was hysterical, but you actually had two adult males going after it. Now the idea is don't hurt anybody and keep the craft of the thing going on. But sometimes people take things seriously. I talk about this in the book, you know, having been hired to play rapists uh, on a number of occasions, kind of a thankless task because, you know, you're not going to have too many friends of actresses that you're hired to emotionally even if there's not even any physical contact, emotionally assault them for three days while you're filming. But, uh, even, even if you go to them quietly at the beginning and say, uh, look, Naomi, this is not me. This is um, the character. I have to come after you. That is not to say doing physical damage, but just emotional damage. It takes people a time if they're like, for me, it's standard operating procedure. You know, um, but anyway, it's it's a it's a funny little nuance of playing villains. Uh, it's just your point of reference. You know, I did it. I'm digressing, but I, I did a NCIS New Orleans thing, and I was playing a Serbian mass killer, and they they they're breaking me out of prison, so they grab me, pull me out of the swamp. And they run me around the back of this truck and put me in the car and we speed away while the FBI is firing at us. So the scene called for uh, just before I come out from the back of the truck, the machine gun fire of the uh, FBI causes the windshield and the passenger side window doors open to explode from the bullet fire. Well, they were late on the hit. So myself and the lead actress come around from the back of the car and we're about a foot away from the window and it explodes. So uh, glass goes all over our faces about a foot away. I mean, it was miraculous that neither one of us lost our, our eyes. Well, the lead actress, who really wasn't used to action movies, I mean, this stuff happens. So for me, it was kind of like another day, you know, but she was rightly furious, terrified and 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 beside herself and left the set. But meanwhile, I was like, you know, I haven't been on low budget films where they tell you the building is going to explode. Well, the building explodes and you go, do you have some pads? And they go, pads? So that's why I carry my own pads to every job. 
Patrick, let's go ahead and beam into our Star Trek discussion now, because there is a lot to talk about here. And, and you know, we've been really focused so far on the interview on a lot of your action roles, but uh, that really is not giving the respect you deserve for your dramatic roles as well and your dramatic abilities. And I feel like in Star Trek, you have to really combine a lot of those elements together and really show us a lot of who you are as a performer. Uh, and let's just start at the beginning, a role we've talked a little bit about in this episode so far, uh, which was your first appearance on Voyager. And that was as a Kazon named uh, Rezik, I believe it's pronounced. I always mess up the Kazon names, but in the second season episode, Initiations. So uh, let's just start here at the top. How did you get cast for this role? Because you talked to us uh, a little bit earlier about auditioning and how you're very good at auditions. So uh, what was the Star Trek audition like for the first time? Or had you auditioned previously for Star Trek? No, that's Junie Lowry uh, handled all of that stuff. Um, I went over, and that's Paramount, which is I literally could throw a baseball from my place to Paramount. I went over there, and uh, I did the audition. And as I was leaving, uh, the casting director said, they loved what you did, but they want to see the fact that you're sending your kid out to kill um, a um, Star Trek, a Federation officer. They want to see the emotional cost of that. Okay, so when you come back. So I went away and I came back. And the, a really remarkable thing about Star Trek was a couple. I mean, it's true. It's some real remarkable things. One, they change the script all the time. So, like, you'll learn a script, and then you'll get another script delivered to you at 2 o'clock in the morning. And then with a character like Razik, you're in makeup at 4, 4.15. So I wasn't going to get much sleep during this time. But anyway, I go back for the audition, and I would have provided whatever they were asking for, and I got I booked the job. And I've now learned the script twice. Mm -hmm. Well, we get ready to shoot, and they deliver a third script. And uh, also, it's I say standard operating procedure. That's really not normal. You don't get your script written every single day. You might get some revisions or something like that. But they would change the, the thrust of whatever. And that was one of those shows... You know, Kate Mulgrew and Robert Beltran and stuff. I think to give those guys a break, they would create episodes where other people are doing all the talking so that they can get a break, rightly so. And that was one of those shows where Kate comes in at the end and says, beam me up, because they're exhausted from doing the show and they need a break. So, And I had these really long monologues for this part so uh, anyway I went over there and I got the part and then here back to Goran country uh, the first day is in Vasquez Rocks which is where Goran was filmed it's like 120 degrees and here's the other thing that I, I'm sure your uh, fans know about Star Trek but lo and behold it turns out that a lot of the costuming comes from nature and creatures in the natural world. Like if you go in the makeup trailer of Star Trek, there's all kinds of pictures of, uh, it looks like pictures from an ocean lagoon because there's different fish and they're pulling things from 
different things in the natural world. Yeah. Well, Razik's costume was based on a turkey. <laughs> that so, explains so much. Can I just tell you, Patrick, because I've never been a fan of how those things look, and that, that really answers the question of why. <laughs> well, you're talking about that a gobbler kind of thing and this great unwieldy thing on the top of your head that actually weighed about 20 pounds. How, you know, I think they asked Brad Pitt, uh, how do you feel about the dignity of acting? And he said, well, there is no dignity to acting. So my character is based on a turkey. And so, and that's cool. I like turkeys. They're all right. They're delicious. Yeah. Well, aside from they're, they're pretty interesting animals, but they, um, so anyway, I, I get to make up at four in the morning and we go to Vasquez Rocks. It's 120. They were literally airlifting people out of there because if you were drinking fluids continually, people would go drop like fun. So the, the job is further complicated by Kate and I had done a, a, a job called Remo Williams years before in Mexico. So Kate's then boyfriend, uh, Robert, God, he's a wonderful guy, is German, and he was like the go-to guy whenever they wanted to do the pilot of a, of a sci-fi show. Uh, German-American, uh, I forget what his name was. He's a great guy. So I'm sitting there, and I think he assumed, because Kate and I would talk intimately, that we might have had an romantic involvement which is not true. But we were talked very friendly. We spent a lot of time in Mexico together. So joking around, uh, this director, I said, uh, he's German. I said, so was your grandfather a Nazi? And I was just joking around in a really stupid way. And Kate said, Patrick. And then he said, no, I came from Germany. And I served two tours in Vietnam with the United States artillery. So I was a complete idiot right from the get-go. So he spent the rest of the show getting me back in a, in a nice way. So, like, I would do my bit, and he would go, that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. We'll fix it in post. And he was... So he was, you know, the worst. And I knew it wasn't terrible. I knew it was I thought it pretty. I had other producers coming up to me and say, boy, you really saved their ass on this one. And it was free. The other funny thing was they, there were five of us, and they said, okay, you're on another planet, and the atmosphere is having a gravitational issue on you. So you got five guys all doing their own individual interpretation of what walking in this gravity is. So it's really like three stooges uh, uh, walking down this thing. And, and so, and remember, I'm not getting any sleep because they're delivering a new script at two in the morning and I'm in makeup at four. Yeah. So we go from Vasquez Rocks to Paramount Pictures. And at that time, the guest stars, have you seen A Bridge Over the River Kwai? Yes. Well, you remember what the box was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's where they put the prisoners, okay? They put uh, Guinness in the, in the, when you acted up, they put you in this box. You couldn't even stand in there, and it was stifling heat. Well, that's what they had for guest stars 
on Paramount. They had these little boxes. They were made out of wood. They've since been torn down years ago. But that's what they had for the guest stars. So that's what I'm living in on Paramount. Okay, like straight out of a scene from Papillon. Right, exactly. So it's stifling hot. I've got this turkey makeup on all day. I'm not complaining. It's just part of the deal. But um, so I'm not getting any sleep. I'm on about four days with no sleep. Well, they had an espresso machine on the set. And at the time, I was kind of doing some real methody stuff. So I asked them to give me uh, a sledgehammer. Okay. Uh, and so before each scene, I would beat the concrete floor a couple of times, and that would put this flame look in my eye. Uh, totally unnecessary, <laughs> totally whatever. But I felt that that's what I needed for this particular scene. So, and also you kind of were, you're kind of used to, if you're an actor, indulgently, if you need a cup of coffee, you turn to a production assistant and say, can you get me a cup of coffee? Well, the first day I turned to this female production assistant, I said, can you get me a coffee? And she goes, you know, hits me with the F-bomb and says, get it yourself. So I, I was like, what? I'm, I'm into special territory here. So anyway, I, I, I made my way to this triple espresso machine. And the first day I had seven of them, seven triple espresso, because no sleep, relearning the script each time. Second day I had eight. The third day I had nine triple espresso, still no sleep. You're more coffee than man, Patrick. Right. So, um, so, and I'm hitting the floor with a sledgehammer and I'm this intergalactic serial killer. And so, at that point, uh, Robert, I've got to look up his name. It's terrible that I forgot because we became really fast friends. I've lost touch with him, but he, we did a fight scene between Robert Beltran and I, and I hurt my neck. So, I think the last day I was doing like 10 triple espressos, four Advil, and four dad's root beer. That's what my diet was. When I, and I'm where, and by the, then the episode ends and everybody's so exhausted. There's nobody even left to take the makeup off of you, which took an hour and a half anyway, each day. So I make my way back with the makeup in complete tatters, but nobody to take it off to the, my box. And I began to weep in the box and I'm just completely shattered. And I'm completely in chemical psychosis from Fort Dad's root beer and Advil and days of triple espresso. <laughs> well, have you ever been to the Paramount lot? I was lucky enough to go once for an event. Yeah. Well, do you remember the parking lot? Yep. It's not overly big, right? No, no, it's pretty small. And you got that big ocean scrim and everything else. So it took me four hours to find my car in that parking lot. And it's only about the size of a football field. Yeah. If that. And so I, I was going to turn myself into the police for protection, but I figured they wouldn't protect me. They would just beat me with billy clubs and, and put me in an institution. So I finally um, managed to drive about a mile to a friend's house, and he put me in his spare bedroom, and I um, complete chemical psychosis at this point. 
he puts me in his spare bedroom and I chanted, please, God, I commend my soul to thee for about six hours. And finally, I came down and and fell asleep. And the next morning, the my agent calls and said, oh, they love you. They want you to come back. And I was like, oh, my God. Of course, all was well by the time I fell asleep and everything else. So that's why I call the show the River of Doom, because it was it was one of the most rigorous things I've ever gone through. And oh, by the way, when we did this fight scene, yep. 27 takes to get it to the satisfaction of the director. That is a lot and for a Star Trek show, especially because they're usually boom, That's boom, a boom, lot boom. of takes. And so uh, he was a perfectionist and really good at what he did. I, 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 they called me out for an audition and I go to the audition and uh, I can't remember if I saw that he was the director and I figured he hated me from the experience of Star Trek. And uh, so I said to the agent, no, I'm not going to go because he hates me. So I, I, any, I went over there and uh, no, I know what it was. I went to the audition and I, as I'm leaving, I see he's sitting there and I said, it's you. And he said, uh, yes, it's you, but it's me. It's a really snide way. And so I, I was convinced he hated me. So when it came to Deep Space Nine, I saw that he was the director. So I said, no way am I going over there. He hates me. And they said, I oh, just go on over there. And I go over there and he said, I don't hate you, Patrick. And they, he hired me for the job. So the whole thing was just just a wonderful little exercise. And he and I would go out to lunch for a long period of time. And we became really good buddies. I'm trying, give me one second. I'm going to look it up because I think it was Winrick Culver, I want to say. Let me... Yes, 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 yes. It was Winrick. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, despite Winrick. all of the hallucinations and psychoses and, and the uh, coffee-fueled craziness, uh, I mean, you pulled out a really amazing performance, I have to say, you know, because I... I'm not like I said earlier. I'm not really a fan of the Kazons typically, but you, yeah. you know, you were number one a very threatening character, but also a very three dimensional realistic character, and like you really brought a lot of life to this character and everything that you did, especially with Aaron Eisenberg. I mean, it felt real. It felt like there was some actual bond between these two characters. Like it was truly amazing. So it's also just kind of humorous now to hear the hellish story behind it. But uh, I mean, you did some amazing work there. Oh, well, thanks so much. I, I will tell you that. It's much easier being a Star Trek officer because uh, what was a blonde girl who was in Star Trek Voyager? Cherry uh, uh, Ryan? Not her. I had an experience with her, but uh, the short-haired one, little pixie haircut. Oh, uh, Jennifer Lean, who was Kess. I don't know if that was her name, but frankly, when you're wearing Kazon makeup, nobody is attracted to you. <laughs> But she was. So I don't know what that says. About I'm not touching her. that one. I'm not going near that one. So, uh, which I always thought was really funny. But then to do Deep Space Nine after that and be a human officer, oh, my God. It's just such a liberating deal and so much fun. And so, uh, and a totally different experience because everybody, you're a hero. Everybody, you know, uh, likes to talk to heroes. So yeah, let's let's talk about that one. In fact, that's one of my favorite DS9 episodes of all time. Easily, uh, that is from uh, the seventh season. That's the siege of AR five five eight. 
Uh, yeah. It's basically like Star Trek does their version of Saving Private Ryan. It's such a, an interesting episode because uh, it's like, you yeah. know, ground level fighting. Uh, it's not like we usually see with special effects, spaceship battles. This is like real deal in the battlefield. It's something we've never seen out of a Star Trek show. Uh, and, you know, knowing your background and, you know, having your father be in the military. Yeah. Uh, you know, what did you think about the content of this episode? Well, like I said, I love the fact that I was playing uh, essentially a good guy, although jokingly a good guy who kills a lot of people at the yeah. same time. And having been raised on World War II movies, and I believe it's modeled after a Steve McQueen movie. Uh, uh, is it uh, Ellis for Heroes or something like that? Um, so I love doing it. And uh, I, at the time, I was a recreational and competitive shooter. So uh, I owned one of the phasers. I came away from the show with one of the phasers. And well, now how the heck did you get that out the front door? Because usually that kind of stuff is like, and they don't let anybody walk out with communicators. How did you get a phaser out the door? I can't remember, but it really wasn't me stealing something as much as it sounds like. Somehow I ended up with it. And, and that was really cool. And I actually sold it at one of the conventions. Um, so did I sell it or I gave it away? All my memorabilia, I always gave away to charities that would have me uh, for their event. And so I would give them things to offset the cost of having me there. Huh. And so scripts and things like that, they would auction off and stuff. So that was a wonderful job. I loved, I mean, what boy doesn't want to grow up and be in a war movie? And that's basically what I got to do. It's kind of like, the two great things that are the most fun, although any acting job can be really fun, is war movies and westerns, if you're a particular kind of personality. Um, so, um, like, Tour of Duty was really fun to do. Um, it was a, a great fun, and I think I'm the only person who ever worked with Aaron Eisenberg on two different shows. Yeah, it's a very rare thing to know. The fact is that you were actually, I was going to ask you about that, in fact, because I want to get into some more of your memories with, with the late, great Aaron Eisenberg, because, yeah, he did, again, that performance you guys did in Voyager, it wasn't just that you were amazing, it was that you guys were playing off each other so well. Like, there was just this yeah. amazing rapport you two had, and, again, you're with him here in DS9, this time he's as his recurring character, Nog, and it's a pretty critical episode to Nog's story as well. I mean, this is the episode where he loses part of his leg. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, let's just talk a little bit though about uh, what you remember about working with Aaron and uh, any, any stories you might have about him. Well, I, this isn't about Aaron particularly, but, uh, I mean, obviously you can't talk about those characters without that makeup. Mm, yeah. Uh, which is extraordinary. Um, I, what I remember about the show was, I forget what they were called, those mind things that would appear any place. Uh, the Jem'Hadar? No, the Jemadars were the bad guys. That's who we were killing, and I was keeping the necklace yep. of their their light tubes or whatever. Yeah, they're kept they the had these these mines that would appear, and you wouldn't know where they were, and they would blow off if you hit them. Uh, I forget what the name of those was, bouncing Betty's or something like that. But let's go with that. I like that. I remember that. Uh, well, Bouncy Betty comes up from the ground when you step on it and it blows off about waist high. And that's these things would just appear. Um, that was cool. I remember the lead of that. Tell me, refresh me the name of the lead of Richard. Well, uh, that one would be Avery Brooks. In, Avery uh, Brooks, right. What a, what a really super guy he was. Um, 
uh, and Winrich was great to work with again as well. Um, I can't remember if uh, the very, very sexy lady was in that one. I'll refresh your memory a bit because uh, Nicole DeBear was there. Uh, DeBoer, I always forget how to say her name too, but uh, she was there as Esri. But the guest stars that episode were Annette Held and you had Bill Moomy from Lost in right. Space. Been alive, spent some time with afterwards. Um, it, for me, the overall conceit was it was just a delight to play a good guy and a hero for once. Um, uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. I even got to say the dramatic things at the end and stick the knife in the sand and everything else. So that's, a, I wish there was more of that in uh, my career, although I've loved playing bad guys and I've loved playing villains, but uh, if I had one thing, I would like it to be more of those kind of uh, heroes guys. Uh, and it's not an economic thing. It's a uh, more of, being able to explore those that landscape of sensibility as well. I don't necessarily think it's, in fact, I think it's actually easier than playing villains because a lot of times you're really merely saying the lines uh, on those and that carries the weight of leading men. I think it takes a lot more energy to actually play a psychotic. Um, uh, so, um, but I really enjoyed playing a, a hero. That was fun. I mean, from all the folks I've talked to in the show in the past, they pretty much always enjoy being the bad guy just because there's so much more things to explore. And knowing a little bit about you know, your background, and what you told us in the show about, you know, your especially your exploits in literature and the authors that you liked and the fact that you were a journalist and into writing. I, you know, I feel like you built up not just a literary vocabulary, but just also a vocabulary of other emotions within that and how to show things and, and different yeah. ways to de demonstrate various emotions. And I feel like as the bad guys. You know, it's very underappreciated, but like you really make them all unique. And, you know, I said this about the Kazon, but very much three dimensional, fully fledged people. And I'll say the same thing, too, about Reese. I, I felt like it wasn't just like the movie tough guy, whatever. Like it felt like, yes, he was the tough guy, but he's also struggling a lot inside. He's seeing his friends die. He's maybe a little shell shocked or PTSD, you know, there's a little PTSD going on. Uh, there's a lot there that you were able to portray. And uh, again, job well done. I'd, I'd love to know more about, you know, just how you found that character. Well, I'm always looking for what's the, first of all, I don't think that bad people are, or good people are all one thing at any time. And so I think personally, I was always trying to, if I could get, like, I, I just did a movie called Catalyst and I played a, a pedophile priest. And look, that's an abhorrent person, uh, abhorrent behavior. And in no way do I condone anything like that or think that they're not completely um, accountable for the, their behavior. Because I believe we're all accountable for our own behavior, certainly after about page uh, age 20 or something, maybe earlier. Um, but in doing the research on pedophilia, what I discovered was that the the root causes of it are so uncomfortably close to the root causes for things that we all possess, whether it's sort of overeating or cigarettes or alcohol or uh, promiscuity or drugs or whatever it is, 
the root causes are similar. Again, none of this mitigates the horror of pedophilia or the makes them less accountable. But when you look at that and discover that the root causes are so uncomfortably close to that which resides in all of us, uh, uh, then what I tried to do with villains was if I can actually arouse people at some juncture, by that I mean stimulate them, or and if I actually can at some point maybe actually have them have some empathy for that person's circumstances, then above and beyond the evil and the action story points that everything is pivoting on, then I was succeeding at what I was doing. I mean, you take a guy like Hitler. I mean, Hitler loved, presumably loved his dog, but then he tested the poison that he killed himself out on his dog. So we would all agree the guy's... Uh, uh, a monster on every level, but somebody liked Hitler and somebody actually cared about him on some level. And at some point he was somebody's little child. What the hell happened? And uh, beyond his whole life was about revenge, uh, which is so governing for a lot of these people. Um, so just try to get a little colors into a thing. It's like the process of auditioning. When I taught actors, the, the process of auditioning isn't just an audition. It's an actual tapestry where you get to show your abilities to inject different colors into a particular moment in time. And uh, I think, you know, you take a guy like Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando, if you look at his work, he often did the complete opposite of whatever the script said. If it said he, you cry, he might laugh. So you, you've got to play the opposite. I, know, I guess you'd call it paradoxical acting and stuff. And so I was always trying to inject those things and still am, still trying to, you know, I'm getting ready to play a conquistador. Conquistadors had no ability, as well as bravery, as well as ruthless, um, maniacal butchery. Um, I think we're complex people. And so I try to inject a little bit of that. And sometimes, you know, if I succeeded at it, then that's great. I think the emotional core, what do I like about movies? What I like about movies is when they emotionally move you. So the same is true of the bricks that makes up movies. If I was playing a character, I'd be wanting to try to connect with what the emotional life of that particular character is. Um, whether that's delight or whether that's wound because of their childhood. So many things come from lack of nurturing for everybody. It's like rapists, like 95% of them were sexually abused themselves. Now, that doesn't stop them from needing to go off and go to prison for the rest of their life or whatever. But it does give you some path towards some sort of understanding to whatever they're going through. So.
not exactly a concise answer, but uh, I'm always looking for different vulnerabilities. If I could show, if I'm a monster, if I'm a serial killer, and I can have a moment of vulnerability, then then you've achieved something. I think you definitely were very successful at showing just a lot of things, and really all the characters you played so far in Star Trek, because you also had excellent scripts here to work with that really gave you a lot of things to develop. Yeah, just like I said, I feel like your Star Trek work really was a great avenue to show off everything you're capable of doing. And, uh, you know, I do want to just go back to the action part of that a little bit, because, sure. yeah, this this episode, Siege of AR-558, it is pretty action-packed. I mentioned it kind of reminds me of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I'd like to hear, if you remember firsthand, uh, what it was like to film some of those battle scenes, because they're, they're very intense, very smoky at times, very dark, a lot darker than we've seen on a show, which is already pretty dark, to be quite honest. Um, yeah, it was a very different look and feel. And I'd like to hear what it was like for you to be there and actually be part of those, what, what looked like they're very hectic fight scenes, uh, you know, on set. Well, being a physical guy, cause I was an athlete before I was an actor, I was always getting assigned stuff that involved some sort of physicality, um, whether it was on stage or movies and those kind of things. So it's really pretty much of a dance. You work it out, and like anything else, um, your muscle develops, and you're able to do those things really quickly. We were talking about that Billy Blanks movie. Yeah, I, mean, I think we did all the fights in that movie in an afternoon. Oh, wow! Um, and so you get much better at. I can't do eight or nine steps. Sometimes I can, but. Generally, you're putting together three or four or five steps, committing that, going through it a couple. It's very much like learning lines. You, you learn that and in short order. I, I'm really blessed because it turned out like memorizing lines. When I first started, that much of lines was really challenging for me to try to remember. But like I tell young actors, it, the more you do it, it's like a muscle in the gym Pretty soon you can read, uh, and it's a great competitive advantage. There are some tricks to it, but if you can learn lines or learn stunt choreography and fighting really quickly, then that's an asset. And that's really just a function of doing it. We, we're directing, uh, directing and producing a movie called Dying for Living right now. And the difference between people who've actually come in and done it and who can put the, the thing together in 10 minutes, the difference between them and somebody who's never done it, you might have to rehearse two hours. Um, so, but the next movie, they'll be able to do that much quicker too. So it's like, it's just a function of learning the steps and committing to it. Um, and then when you're doing that, applying the emotional component to it, um, the best stuntmen uh, do all the physical stuff. The best actors do all the emotional stuff. And stuff. the best action actors are able to do the emotional stuff with the physical stuff. And so that way you can get the best shots you can as quickly as possible. If you're athletic and you're committed to the process, it's, it's something that you can evolve into doing. Um, it helps to have done it prior to coming to the set. Like I'll recommend young actors and 
stuff, study firearms and martial arts and sword play and horseback riding and motorcycling, things like that. Those are all the things I liked doing when I was a kid. So I came to the table with a, a lot of that stuff already. So um, I hope I answered your question. I guess just to be more specific, if you have any uh, memories of any of the stuff that happened on set during those battles or what that was like. You know, I really don't remember specific battles from that time. I remember firing the guns a lot. And there you're talking about mimicking the recoil and stuff because they're putting the light shaft in afterwards. Yeah. And so um, you have to make sure it doesn't look hokey. Uh, and the other thing is make sure you don't say bang when you pull the trigger because from when we're children – we're always going bang, bang, bang. Well, not a good idea to rehearse that way uh, because you don't want to be doing that. Um, I've been shooting guns since I was nine years old. I didn't have a problem with that. I just remember a few little sweeping things fighting those guys when they breached the perimeter. That's about all I remember. I'll have to watch the episode again. It's been a long, long time. Well, it's worth watching again. I mean, it's a really great episode. It's definitely worth uh, revisiting. Uh, I, feel, I feel real blessed to have been in that one. It seems to have some enduring uh, attraction, which is great. Really yeah. great. It's, it's you know, as, as painful as it is to watch the one, because for me, it's also very painful and just seeing what happens to Nog, you know, Aaron Eisenberg's character. And just yeah, also yeah. thinking about the troops that are on that planet while it's being sieged. I mean, just thinking about what happens to your character, what happens to Bill Moomy, what happened to Annette Held's character, because she didn't make it out of there either. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it shows the real cost of war and the real consequences that Star Trek talks about. But this was the first time we really saw it, I feel like, on that level. Yeah, I don't know that we in America generally can even come to grasp with the reality of warfare because if we have to go back to the civil war really to uh really have complete war visited upon us um when you're talking about say world war ii or world war one the level of cataclysm is almost too much for the human mind to grasp and particularly since in this country, we've largely been inured to it. I mean, uh, I recently got hired to write the script uh, on something to do that involved China and Taiwan and all of that. In fact, at the beginning of COVID, when you come to the idea that 520 million Chinese have been killed in the last 320 years, uh, following authoritarian governments. Uh, they had wars in China where 45 million people died before they even had bullets or guns or artillery or machine guns. So you're talking level of warfare uh, is pretty intense. Uh, you know, it's... Um, I... I the human species is pretty ruthless to another. The Battle of Stalingrad, it's almost incomprehensibly cruel. Uh, so for us, it's a movie. For us, it's a, it's a book or something. But for people who have lived from it, I, I, through it, I don't, I don't know how people survive uh, mentally on some levels. You just have to sort of pick on. It's got to color your whole rest of your experience of life. I think for a siege of 
AR-558, that was relatively minor for me. And that's one reason why I don't remember the fighting, because you're talking about 15 years of jobs at that time where I did all of my own stunts and my own fighting. I had a wonderful guy named Dave Rowden who did some of the real death-defying things like the death scene in Last Man Standing. But in in large measure, I always did my own stuff because you get better shots that way. And so uh, I think that was, for me, relatively minor, uh, particularly when I was on the winning side of it. (laughs) It's always nice to be a winner, isn't it? Yeah, always it. Well, I guess on that note, let's uh, let's jump over from Star Trek Saving Private Ryan into Star Trek's version of, I guess we'll say, Fast and the Furious, maybe, because uh, your final Trek appearance was, again, in Voyager, and this time Drive. in the episode titled Drive. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, this time around, you played Asan, who is the guy that is described literally as someone to watch out for. And, uh, you know, Patrick, I-, I have to say, this looks like it's probably the most uncomfortable makeup and outfit, but then, based on what you just told me about the Kazon, now I'm not so sure. <laughs> No, but well, first of all, it's my second time of putting that makeup on. So it's, it's kind of used to the gig. They didn't change the script that much on that one. So it was really just go in early and get it on. And it wasn't a long job. I think it was only two days. Um, so rather than say a week, seven days or something like that. So, uh, it's pretty immobile. You know, you, you're, Everything has to sort of operate from your mouth rather than, I mean, I'm reminded of uh, like Val Kilmer. Have you seen Val? The documentary, yes. yeah. the wonderful yeah. documentary. He talks yeah. about the mask, uh, the Batman costume, and uh, that makeup was a bit like that. Um, I don't think I would take a regular job on a series if it was involving makeup like that. Although, like for Michael. Dorn, is it? Yep, who plays Worf, yep. Yeah, they got so good that they could put his stuff on in like 15 minutes because they did it in big blocks. But if you're a guest star, it's start to finish. Um, Not the ideal acting job to do something like that. But for two days, it was a delight. I got to see Kate Mulgrew and have fun and just uh, another brick in the wall. Yeah, I mean, I know that you've done some some prosthetic works before in like Death Warrant, and you had to do some melty face kind of effects going on there. But you know, this and the case on it's pretty heavy makeup job. And so I'm wondering, you yeah. know, for for natural like yourself, how do you get through those days? I mean, obviously when you were a case on, that was a rough time. But let's just use this example of Hassan here. Uh, you know, how do you get through? And how do you play your character when you're basically so restricted due to your face being covered in plastic? Well, I remember that the emotional life of that guy was in some ways defined by the the mask because you're not going to be doing a lot of expressive stuff. So he's a pretty straightforward competitor, and that's basically what it comes out. I'm here to win, and it's I'm here to take the race, and that's what I'm going to do. So that that's kind of... There's no weeping or vulnerability in that one. Um, so, uh, I, uh, I just had fun with it for a couple of days. And, and for me, I mean, usually when you do a guest star thing on your, there for seven or eight days, that was just a two day job. And we talk about the difficulties of these things. There's no difficulty relative to real life. I mean, try digging a ditch to put a sewer in. Or something like that. I mean, actors, 
in, in the main have it. It's not that it doesn't take courage to do acting. It does. I would say the audition process is where it really takes uh, some real putting yourself out there. And it's very rigorous because you're getting material at 8, 10 o'clock at night, and you've got to be performance ready the next day. Or if you're doing the lead in a film, uh, then you've got to do that every day after day after day. The gig becomes just give yourself as much lead time as you possibly can and work really hard on it and put the time in. But is acting as challenging as, I mean, I'm not even going to say it. It sounds just, you know, be a real soldier for a while and see how that feels. Be a guy who puts in telephone wires, high wires, be an oil rigger. I mean, come on, or a rodeo rider, or, or you know, or an NFL football player. Um, those are things that really take some uh, nitty gritty. Or a professional boxer. Uh, you know, I, I have you seen Ali? You must have done. Yeah, with Will Smith. Yep. Well, there's a great moment when Will Smith looks at the guy who's playing George Foreman, and he says. Are you the guy who who is do you know that you're facing somebody you are going to have to kill in order to beat? And those guys really take courage and stuff. I think And that was Ray James Tony, I believe, also actual uh, boxer too. Yeah, I think raising two kids by yourself as a single mom, that's a role. I don't think being an actor in Star Trek is all that brutal or challenging or anything. Um, it's not for everybody, but it's it's not a challenging deal. We're very blessed to work in this business and to continue to do it. Patrick, you know, we've had a, a long discussion and we barely really have even scratched the surface on your career. I mean, there's so much here uh, to discuss. But luckily, as you mentioned earlier, you do have two books right now. Uh, you have one that's already out, one coming out very soon. And I know you've also been doing a bunch of other things. You have your own production company. You have a lot of movies you're going to be in. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, just kind of fill us in on, on all the cool stuff you're doing that you've got coming out in the near future. Well, I just came out uh, playing um, uh, a very hyper-protective dad in a movie called Lie Hard, which is a real lighthearted comedy directed by Ian Niles, a uh, buddy of mine from Blackwater with Jean-Claude Van Damme, but he's become a director-producer. That's called Lie Hard. Uh, a wonderful director named Chris Falkins has a movie out called Catalyst. Uh, uh, should be out shortly, and I play um, Father Patrick Breyer, the pedophile priest in that one. Um, my production company is in mid-production of a movie, an action film called Dying for Living. Uh, great cast, Nina Bergman, Costas Mandalore, myself, uh, two wonderful twins, the Wall Twins, uh, Hegan Machado, who's uh, eight-time uh, world jiu-jitsu champion, uh, Olivia Gruner, uh, action uh, lead himself. It's My stunt coordinator is Art uh, Camacho, who's a director and great legendary stunt coordinator. Uh, produced by a fellow named Raffaello and myself. Uh, and we're getting ready to do uh, uh, a Western set in the 1500s in Arizona. And um, I'm, we're gearing up for that. And what else is going on? Uh, oh, I, I just did a movie called Nessie, uh, directed by the wonderful Robbie Moffat, who I love. Um, 
And that's about the Loch Ness Monster, and that should be out in Christmas, uh, at Christmas time. And a really fun comedy. Um, and uh, I had a, a, a great joy doing that in uh, Scotland. I think you also have a film coming out soon called The Ice Cream Man, which seems like that's, uh, I feel like that's going to be like a good 80s style action movie, maybe. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, the Ice Cream Man was, there's a guy named Matthew Nye and a couple of his buddies who, when they went through a period, they're very creative. And we were always doing teasers for different movies to speculatively um, uh, sell them uh, and raise the funding. Well, Ice Cream Man was one of the better ones. And I somehow that one fell to my responsibility. And so I put a great script together, um, a treatment really, not the full script, but it's kind of on an afterburner. It hasn't been something that when COVID happened, this is why destiny kind of takes over. When COVID happened, I was happily polishing the second volume of my memoir, but we immediately got hired to write and produce something that had to do with China, Taiwan, and America. And I saw, wow, this is a very topical landscape. So we took that on. I put a team together of graphic artists and myself and some writers and filmmakers. And we built the strategic materials for that, wrote the script, and began shepherding it into the streaming services. Then we got the funding for another process, a crime project set in Tokyo. And then uh, we kind of got known for being able to write the script, create strategic materials, and shepherd it to high net worth individuals and funding and streaming services. And so then I was given the money to produce Dying for a Living. And that's where we are now. So the Memoir got put on hold. Ice Cream Man is sitting there. It's a really cool little story, but I've never really been able to, because we got engaged to do. You kind of, in this business, have to go where the money, when it drops, you've got to go with it. So that's where we are at the night. Interesting uh, fantasy, though. Um, we built a whole world for it, and sometime we'll get there. I hope so. Please don't let the Ice Cream Man melt. I want to see that get made. Okay. Sounds great. Um I, uh, I'll do my best. We, creating projects is not really the challenge for us. The challenge, uh, although it's time consuming and passionately involving, the, you, you've got to make up, uh, the path to not only the financing, but the economic model to getting it, uh, not only done, but money's returned to investors and yeah. profit and all of that. And that is the real skill involved in filmmaking that no one talks about. Yeah, it's really where the rubber hits the road on a lot. Don't get me wrong. Being able to write great scripts, being able to create great visual strategic materials, great gift. Not everybody can do it. We've I've got a really blessed team. But then to move into production, but also the funding. of Everybody in town probably has two or three ideas, but you've got to find and secure the funding um, uh, in order for those dreams to become reality. Uh, and they're not inexpensive. I think it's a disease if people think that you can do movies without a great deal of money. Now, you can get a camera and go out and do some inventive stuff just on your own. And we've done that sometimes. But that's not really full-blown movie making, in my opinion. I like employing a lot of people. And particularly if you move into Screen Actors Guild territory, 
uh, rather than a non-union production, you're talking about significant amounts of money. So let's do a quick lightning round, Patrick. And I got a few last questions okay. for you. So don't think about it. Just answer as much as you can. Uh, let's start this off here with best gig you've ever had, worst gig you've ever had on a set. What comes to mind, first of all, there's never been a, a, a worse gig because the worst gigs provide you with the best stories and there's always something to be gleaned from it. That's a good way to look at it. That would be like saying, which is your best kid and which is your worst kid? You don't really think in those terms. It's hard to beat working with Steven Spielberg, but I have to tell you that there's a lot of other jobs that I've done that have been just as rewarding. Uh, and some of them are tiny little films because you get to do your own stunts and make up your own dialogue and improv your way through a dialect. And, uh, you know, um, so there's always something wonderful. But doing Minority Report's pretty cool. I'm really excited about the movie we're developing right now. I'm really excited about Lie Hard having just come out. Uh, it's really fun. Um, I'm jazzed about the future, and I try to keep my life that way. Um, I mean, I've done some, I, I did a movie with a, a Nigerian store clerk, and he thought he was Martin Scorsese, and he was not. But I still got some great stuff out of doing the job. Um, so, no, there are no bad children. How about most memorable fight scene that you've had? Because you've had a lot of great ones. Oh, it's hard to beat Death Warrant with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, I really, I'm totally amused by, uh, I just saw Billy Blanks and I told you about the one with Showdown and, uh, talk about politically correct. Uh, I, I pulled out my wet belt and so a big, large white man whipping a large black man is about as politically incorrect as you can possibly do. But it worked and, and, and it was sort of, cultural uh, resonance for the time. Uh, I'm very proud, like I said, that we did all those fights in like an afternoon. Um, uh, worst fight scene, I've never been hurt. I guess that would be the uh, one that I would get injured in. No, I haven't. I don't have any bad children and I don't have any uh, worst fight scenes either. <laughs> I, I'm totally in awe of Dave Rowden's exit out the door um, on the ratchet for Last Man Standing when he was doubling me, because I thought he was killed, but he <laughs> shook it off, walked up, and went home. Well, so, how about, uh, since you kind of alluded to this a little bit, uh, a moment from your performing career that was the most challenging, but then ultimately became the most rewarding for you? The most challenging... I think the most challenging thing about acting for me is... Um, you always want to exceed yourself from what's gone before. Like, um, it's really important to me to not use tricks that I've used before to good advantage, whether it's your diabolical grin or uh, something that you've had to actually live in the moment of the time that you're doing it. And that's really what it comes down to. If you stay with acting, then are you enamored with the process of creating these moment-by-moment -moment experiences that are completely of that moment and original? So I think 
staying there and staying in a place and being devoted to creating something that is resonant um, becomes the greatest challenge. You're really only competing uh, and challenging yourself. So um, I think that's the greatest challenge. They're always ahead. And that it cuts across writing and producing and acting. And and uh, I want Dying for Living right now to be the finest film I can put out with an extraordinary team. And uh, I think we're well on the way, but we've got a long way to go. And I'm glad you mentioned, by the way, uh, the diabolical grin, because I know that's one of the, the signature things of Patrick Kilpatrick is that smile. Uh, the very evil smile, and I'm afraid to see it because that means it's going to be killing time for me. So uh. that's okay if it comes out authentically in a scene. That's but true. if you're if you're going into the scene and going, okay, uh, on eight seconds of the scene, I'm going to do the Patrick Kilpatrick diabolical grin. <laughs> that's not really living in the moment, you know. It's like uh, coming up with something like. Like we talked about the effect of caffeine on that particular job. I am really intrigued by acting without any stimulation at all, not even a piece of Hershey bar. What comes out of, because all of those things alter your consciousness in some way. Uh, so um, playing with your unsullied mind maybe setting the bar too high, given the fact that we all have a sullied mind after a certain point. But I think that's what really actually intrigues me to, uh, to, to play with the unsullied mind. All right, Patrick, how about best piece of advice for someone who is a budding actor trying to break into this profession? I'm very blessed. I had a guy named John Tillinger when I first started out, the most young actors and stuff, what they really have trouble is finding where um, excellence lies. And particularly in a town like LA and stuff like that. Um, I think the best advice would be to commune with masters. If you're a writer, then you want to study guys like Hemingway or, or Moliere or Flaubert or Fitzgerald or Honor Thompson or Ken Kesey or Thomas McGuane. If you're an actor, you ought to be looking at guys like Sir John Gilgood and Olivier and Kenneth Branagh and Kate Blanchett and Sean Penn and uh, Javier Bardem and... Kirk Douglas, uh, and, and I call it communing with the masters. If you can commune with the masters, and by the way, that doesn't cost you anything. You can get a, a free, I mean, a used copy of uh, Death in the Afternoon by Hemingway for two bucks on Amazon, or you can dial up uh, Path to Glory with Stanley Kubrick. You, whatever art form you're doing, then you should be communing with the masters, see how they did it, and actually try to execute that. I mean, I spent a summer mimicking Fitzgerald and mimicking Hunter Thompson and mimicking uh, Ernest Hemingway and watching uh, other great screenwriters and seeing what they're doing or television shows and stuff like that. So 
Um, that would be the best advice I would do. Now, once you do that, that's not the same as going and doing it um, often. So I think you have to go in front of an audience and do it. Stage, uh, or whether the audience is merely the crew on a film, you've got to go and do it. You can do all the research you want about serial killers, but that's not the same thing as playing a serial killer in a movie. So uh, somebody once said it takes 10 years to make an actor. I don't think you, I think that might be true, but you can be working the whole time during that 10 years and learning as you go along. And it never stops. Uh, I'm, hope I'm applying the freshness, whatever I have, to whatever I have. Sometimes that can be challenging when they want you to come in and play that villain. So you've got to make sure, okay, I'm going to play that villain in a completely fresh way. Uh, and that can be exciting. And last thing for today, Patrick, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Getting as much money as possible for the pictures when you go to the conventions? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, but seriously, you do a job like Hassan, it's probably worth $20,000 at convention signing autographs. But um, the best thing about being part of the Star Trek universe is that you are part of a communal experience of a tribe, kind of like deadheads. Star Trek fan people are very much like deadheads. They travel for one. I, I mean, I recently, I didn't do a convention from like 2002 till maybe three months ago. And I swear to God, the same people were there. And that's kind of their life is Star Trek. So I'm glad if I could be a part of that and I could, mean something to them and, and touch somebody in that universe in that way. Yes, it's merely acting, but it's kind of interesting the effect that Star Trek has had on people. Um, so that's the best thing for me. And you are a very memorable part of the Star Trek universe. And, you know, I want to just thank you today, Patrick, for chatting with me and, and my audience and, telling us a lot about you. I mean, there's so much more that, you know, again, I want to make sure folks know to check out Patrick's books if you want to learn a whole lot more, uh, you know, because there's, like I said earlier, a lot of things we've barely even had a chance to discuss today. So check out all of Patrick's books. We'll have links for that in our show notes. And uh, again, Patrick, it's been really wonderful talking to you. You know, I I've seen you in so many things, not even just Star Trek. I've seen you in so many things before then and all these different action films and shows that I've watched. And, uh, you know, it's been a real treat just getting to know you and, and seeing who the real person is behind all those roles because it's not what I expected. It's someone who is a true entrepreneur, a raconteur, uh, a very, very knowledgeable, brilliant person here uh, who does some really amazing work. So uh, I'm glad I got to share your story on my show today. It's very kind of you. It's been my honor. and uh, I wish you well and uh, onward and upward. And I hope that uh, America continues to voyage into space because, you know, as a boy who grew up with the birth of that, that the exploration of space is I think vital to the human species. Um, and, uh, I think we're back into that now again. Uh, so I think that's important for our spirits. So thank you very much. Well, oh, thank you. And, uh, you gotta make ice cream and just do it for me. That's all. Just do it for me. <laughs>
Uh, I will take that to real heart. I promise that I will. <laughs> if you do it, we'll do our very, very best to make it really, really uh, special. That's all I ask, Patrick. I just want the ice cream man made. That's all. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.